Welcome everybody to the 25th episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas, and we discuss particular keywords. So the keyword for today is undercommons, and as guest we have Stefano Harney. Alan, would you please introduce Stefano? Certainly I would. I'm delighted to uh, introduce Stefano Harney, who is currently the visiting critic at Yale School of Art. He's worked at numerous universities, including um, City University of New York, University of Leicester, Queen Mary, and University of London. He's one of the founders of Ephemera and has made a big impression on critical management studies. Uh, He's author of various books, including... Um, state work, public administration, and mass intellectuality, and is perhaps best known for the book we're going to be addressing today, which is The Undercommons, Fugitive Banning and Black Study, which he co-wrote it with Fred Moten. So hello, Stefano. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. So Stefano, what is The Undercommons? Well, um, it's um, it's a bit of an anti-term in that sense, and that as as uh, as you might know, if you've if you've heard us speak about it before or, or, or seen us write about it, we, we tend to avoid trying to define it uh, too carefully. But I could talk a little bit about some of the effects that we were trying to um, capture, some of the practices we were trying to capture by using the term. The first of which is to try to uh, think about a collective practice, a common feel that um, is based on sharing. And when I say sharing, I'm speaking first and foremost about the sharing of being, um, as opposed to the sharing of wealth or products of our labor or anything like that. Um, The Undercommons is a place where people help each other to share, where they practice getting out of the unhealthy and potentially lethal uh, notion of being an individual, being a subject being a person in development um, who's planning to attain certain goals uh, and who is uh, in charge of his or her personality, et cetera, et cetera. So one way to think about the undercommons is uh, as a designation of those practices and of the places and displacements where such practices um, have always occurred and continue to occur in which we, we share, we understand ourselves, um, to, to use a quotation from Cedric Robinson, which is also the quotation for, for our, our forthcoming uh, new book, um, we're all incomplete. And practicing that incompleteness together is, is one way that we, uh, we try to understand what the undercommons might, might stand for or might try to represent. Can you explain to us the role of professionalization in this process of becoming? Yes, uh, and I think I would do that probably biographically because, you know, Fred and I have known each other forever. We went to college together, and uh, but we didn't write together. We talked, of course, um, till about 15 years ago when um, we had realized um, the degree to which we had fallen into certain forms of professionalization. And we, the first things we began to write 
even before we began to conceptualize or under-conceptualize the undercommons, um, were really um, analyses of our workplace. And some of this was going on, uh, Alan, at the same time that I was also spending a lot of time analyzing the business school, which was a new kind of workplace for me. And I was learning from people around me, like Martin Parker, for instance, um, uh, Campbell Jones, uh, Tony Tinker, Chris Carter, a whole set of people. You know, I was learning about the business school, but I was also learning a, a kind of critique of working there. But for, for me and Fred, what was most important was what does the profession do? And I, it's almost um, too obvious to rehearse, but it's very hard to avoid. So, of course, when you enter graduate school, after you've already been through a lifetime of grading based on some false notion of meritocracy or, or effort or whatever else, when you finally enter graduate school with all that um, distortion in your education already of course you all remember that what we're asked by our 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 committee by our supervisor is you know what is your unique and original contribution so from that very moment the stress is placed on individual labor but also on this notion that each of us has this sort of uniqueness at its heart and that if we're lucky, that uniqueness will actually manifest itself as a kind of genius critical uh, acumen, which will allow us to make our way in the world of academia. And of course, everything is set up to individualize us and to, and to get us to feel that if we don't pay attention to our career, we'll be shown the door. So these practices, and we know them very well, this, you know, for instance, all the citations we do in which what we're really saying is, you know, this idea belongs to this person. Um, all the emphasis on working individually, even when we collaborate, it's often just a matter of breaking up the work and then doing it individually. And of course, you know, then you stand up in front of the students and you're supposed to be the font of some sort of original and independent and autonomous uh, knowledge. Um, and you expect the same from them. All of that individuation is, of course, drawing us closer and closer to these impossibilities of being sovereign. Um, and, of course, the only way to convince yourself that this sovereign self is possible um, is to act out the most um, sociopathic attacks on everybody who's not sovereign or on everybody who's failing to be sovereign enough in your and to deny the collective social reproduction that put you in that place and keeps you in that place. So for me and Fred, we came together at first to help each other get out of that. To get out of that in the same way you would come together, let's say, if you were working in the post office, but with a difference. You know, most people who work in the post office understand that you know, the post office is just the post office. But people who work in the university think it's some kind of special institution. And partly because it's always telling you how special it is. And one place where it tells you it's special is around the way it claims it is the natural monopoly for the practice of study. And yet what it really is, is the regulation and interdiction of study. And its major weapon for that is again, professionalization, careerism, individualization, and where that fails, casualization and 
and all the kind of abuses of labor that we see going alongside of that. So we got together originally to try to write about our workplace. And the first few things we wrote, we didn't put in the undercommons because when we began writing the undercommons, with the exception of that essay that has the same name, sort of, we really said, well, one of the other things the university's done to us, one of the things the profession has done to us, is it has us focusing all day long on the shit that we hate. You know, somehow we believe that that's what it meant to be a critical intellectual, to, to criticize and to, and to criticize all the stuff you don't like, the state, whatever it is you're criticizing. And in the undercommons, one thing we were trying to do, which we've continued in our work ever since, is to write about the stuff that we love and to write about the things that we care about. Now, I'm not saying nobody ever does that in academia, but I am saying that in our case, we had strayed into this form of being an individual with something to say about what was wrong with something else. And we wanted to move away from that towards more collective work. So we had to help each other out of being this, these sort of personas. That was our first effort together to write. And like I say, what made it tricky was that, you know, the university, less so these days than in the old days, but still to some extent, apparently where you are, makes you want to fall in love with it. Like it isn't just the car plant or some other workplace, but that's all it is. Um, so it's a little harder work than just saying, They've sped up the line too much, and we have to deal with that. And I think eventually we were able to, to get past those kinds of behaviors, those kinds of habits, and begin to start to write in a way where we, we could once again love our writing, where we could once again love sharing, where we could once again be indistinguishable with each other and with those around us. But that's really the, the germination of what... We, became our, our collaborative work. And the term that you give to that process is fugitive planning. Uh, why should it be a matter of, of being a fugitive? Well, um, the background to that, of course, would be that one of the ways we were able to pull ourselves out of what, what now appear to me to be very harmful traps of, of critique and, and professionalization in the university, one of the reasons we were able to pull ourselves out we had both been trained in the black radical tradition, especially as it, it shows up in people who uh, suffered the consequences of the Atlantic slave trade, but also how it reverberates out and around from there, and connects with other traditions, the indigenous tradition, etc. And from there, we started to understand that despite what the university says, study has been going on for a long time. And by necessity, for many people in the black radical tradition, this is study that happens outside the university. But it was also study that takes all kinds of different forms. By necessity also, it's a, it's a fugitive form of study. And the reason we say that, and the reason we talk about planning and, and, and how we oppose it to something like policy is that you have to be constantly moving and changing and hiding in order to study, because not only is the university there to prevent you from getting together and doing what you want, but pretty much every institution is designed to do that. As we expanded our understanding of study to include people playing music together, cooking together, gardening together, um, 
just hanging out and playing cards together, um, as well as reading the Bible or, or, or reading some work that's been smuggled into the prison, whatever the case might be, we start to see that study is this widespread practice, but everywhere that it occurs, it's under duress. And that's why we talk about the fugitive, because in order to keep doing it, in many senses, you have to keep running. Now, we also use the fugitive in a way to maybe set it in relationship to the history of uh, marinage, of maroon community. When you think about maroon communities, these incredibly uh, brave and dangerous communities, one thing you, when you study them, one thing you realize, whether it's Palmeiras here in Brazil or whether it's the maroon communities in Jamaica or in, in the dismal swamps of, uh, of the United States, southern United States, one thing you see that inherent in a maroon community uh, under racial capitalism is, 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 is betrayal. And yet you ask yourself the question, why? Well, why, is, why is there at this moment of betrayal? Because in order for a maroon community to actually become a settlement, it begins to take the form, the very form of racial capitalism, of settler colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point has to make that kind of deal as disallowed as it is. And this is no way to uh, diminish the, the bravery, the importance of the maroon community. It's to say that fugitivity is a way of understanding that, at least in the, in the, in the racial capitalist world that we've inherited, one has to keep moving. One has to resist the notion of settling. So fugitive carries a number of um, meanings for us that help us to think about and recognize where we're seeing study and also how to keep study going. Stefano, uh, when we approach the concept of the undercommons, isn't it sort of necessary to also approach it with a sensibility to its affective dimensions? Uh, I can feel this in the notion of the fugitive and also other stuff, like all this uh, subversive stuff. Part of the appeal of the concept to me feels that it is the illicit, the criminal, the underhanded. So is it useful to approach the unconcept of the undercommons from this kind of a uh, sensibility to its affective tension. Yeah, I mean, one one way to think about this would be the way that the great Indian historians uh, uh, un understood the British colonial record. Um, they would read the record in order to find out what was really going on amongst the workers, right? And because there was no there was no record kept of what they were really doing. It was only a record of the reaction. So when we talk about criminality um, or, or fugitivity, or as you say, any of the other terms that appear to run against the law or run against accepted wisdom or morality, what we're doing in part is tracking and tracing all these forms of study, all these resistant uh, collective um, aesthetic socialities. And so, yes, there is a, there's a, always a risk that the book appears to be um, romanticizing, um, you know, the outlaw or crime or whatever else. But what we're really doing is saying, well, you know, what we know is that this person was called an outlaw. What we're interested in is what were these people really doing? Why were they doing it? Why was it necessary to criminalize them? 
so that's the that's the line the the line that we have to walk carefully. Um, we're certainly not um, suggesting that there's anything fun about being on the run, right? Um, but we are thinking about all the ways in which institutions, states, police, etc., step in uh, to prevent our getting togethers in the way that we want to get together. I think that's why the the book is a book that's appealed a lot i've noticed by the invitations we've got to um to art students uh and to graduate students and i think it's because they are they're they're in formation around these things you know they're 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 making efforts which existed long before us or the book to to create autonomous collective spaces for themselves reading groups uh alternative academies etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and they're constantly regulated when they try to do that. So I think they recognized in what we were saying that, you know, we too were t- are trying to, to, to slip that regulation and to see if it might be possible for us, you know, to, to actually practice real, real self-organization. Why is it that the business school in particular is such an interesting space to think about the undercommons? Again, there is some biography in that, in that um, throughout the writing of the Undercommons, I myself was, you know, teaching in business schools and thinking about what it meant to teach in business schools. Um, Cred has mostly been in English departments and now resides in a performance studies department. So he had some significantly different aspects to his labor process. But, of course, we had enough in common to be able to think about these things. With regard to the, the business school, I mean, I, I began by thinking to myself, something I still largely hold to is that the reason to teach in a business school is that that's where the students are. For reasons that are large and historical shifts, you know, there are lots and lots of students in these business schools. And if you're serious about teaching and if you think that helping people to transform each other um, and by transforming each other, perhaps transform the the world that they're in, as as Freire would put it, then I think that, you know, there's a good reason to be there. Of course, at the same time, you're in a place that has maybe the, the, the highest developed sense of individuation, that education is about individuation, in the figure of the entrepreneur, the CEO, the consultant, all these forms uh, where your your goal is to distinguish yourself as much as possible from everybody around you, and and that which you know runs from strategy to marketing to to organizational behavior makes it a very challenging place to try, try to think about. Uh, being incomplete, to try to think about uh, needing others, to try to think about how knowledge is social, to try to think about how, you know, production is social and, and, and then is captured for private gain. So it's a, it's a place where, the, you know, the, the, as they say, used to say, the contradictions are heightened in some ways. And I, and I guess that's one thing that I've, I've held to around the business school for, for a long time, for the, for the more than 15 years that I taught in them. Um, and I sort of culminated that experience with teaching in Singapore, in Singapore Management University, which is 
sort of like teaching in a business school within a business school, um, given how much Singapore society is dedicated, certain, certainly rhetorically, to business um, and to the individual effort and to merit um, and to all of those um, sorting mechanisms that produce uh, completely unsustainable forms of life, unsustainable at the individual level where it is not possible to care for yourself, to um, develop your own career, to do any of those things as if it were just you. Um, and, at, and also unsustainable at other levels, because in order to hold up the pretense that you're self-made or that you're, you're the author of your success, um, you have to deny, degrade uh, all of the resources from, from you know, your own mother to the planet um, that are allowing you to stand up there and act as if um, you're sovereign, act as if you are self-made, etc. So the business school being the kind of crucible for, for the creation of that kind of person today. I mean, it wasn't always the business school, that kind of person, you know, under, under um, you know, British colonialism would, would have gone to, you know, study something much more traditional history or something like that, but would still be produced as that person who would stride forth as if um, his existence weren't entirely dependent on servants, slaves, um, the destruction of the earth, et cetera, et cetera. Today, that, it's the business school that represents that the most, so it's, it's a place, a rich place to challenge all that. Now, I remember an even more devastating critique that you made, which was that business and management studies amount to the study of nothing. Can you remember when, when you made that claim and worked through uh, the, the logical process of deduction? I do remember that, and it's nice that you mentioned that because my ability to say that was, was totally based on my immersion amongst all of you who consider yourselves critics of the business school, and I use critic in a, in a positive sense now. So, I, I mean, it wasn't totally my formulation. It just seemed like the next thing to say after what we were all, to some extent, saying. But, of course, one of the things with the business school is that it essentially erases uh, labor. It's dedicated to management. It's dedicated to marketing. It's dedicated to uh, strategy. But it can't speak about what actually makes money. And in a sense, therefore, at its heart, it's hollow. It can't talk about the actual process that goes on behind its back. Now we have a whole di discipline that's, that's dedicated to that. Uh, if I could play the role of a devil's advocate here a little bit, isn't with all this thinking there kind of a huge risk that you kind of wind up creating, especially within the context of the business school, teaching within the context of the business school, that you wind up creating these sort of a perpetually melancholic subjectivities, both for yourself as a sort of person who approaches business and business relations critically, and also the students that you teach to be critically minded then, and who then enter a work life of that operates with a global machinery that doesn't really care about their learning or their criticality especially. So isn't there a risk that something this kind of a cyclically sad might also come out of this? Well, you, it's, a, it's a great question and one that, you know, we all struggled with and there are all, a lot of dimensions to it. 
One, of course, which is something that our friend Peter Fleming would note, is that business loves some critique, you know, and, and puts it right back to work. An another problem, of course, is the problem of teaching, of how do you avoid not just being depressive in the way that you present things to students, but how do you avoid sounding like you know better than them and they're somehow stupid for being there? there there's a lot of traps and problems. I didn't mean, and I certainly don't mean to suggest that teaching in the business school, you know, just immediately generates all this great stuff uh, for somebody who's thinking differently. I think the business school was yet another example to say, okay, you can do a certain amount in the room with your students if you figure out a way to be with them rather than against them or above them, etc. But it's also, you know, it's also a place of, you know, that reminds you maybe better than a humanities department of, of the real limits of the university, of the, of the necessity of being against the university and its regulation and attempts to monopolize knowledge and accreditation, et cetera, et cetera, and, and to always be working to study that are not uh, immediately subject to, to so much regulation. Although, of course, one of the things that we say about study, you know, because sometimes people will say, well, study doesn't really sound like a very revolutionary activity. I mean, what we've always sort of said is, well, you know, try doing it, and you pretty quickly um, get to the antagonism. You pretty quickly be told you can't use this space. You pretty quickly be told you can't skip, you know, this shift at work, the study. You can't, you know, you can't trade what you learn for food. I mean, the, the antagonisms will come to you when you try with others to set out the space and the time you need to be together, um, to think about stuff or to practice stuff or to help each other, you know, start to realize that it's good to owe people, to owe each other, to go into debt. You know, credit's not what we're after. Citation is not what we're after. Having an idea associated with you as if it's really yours, that's not what we're after. So, you know, when you try to do that, the police come to you in whatever form they come. Um, so, yes, for my friends who are still in the business school, I assume that they are still struggling with, with how, to, how to work in this, in this sort of hollowed out intellectual environment with these students who you know, are often there because they're scared about job markets or they've gone to the place where they think their family will most accept what they're doing because it seems um, the safest place to be, where they know they're not stupid. Uh, they know that a little bit of critical uh, thinking, you know, is perfect for the ad campaign. Too much critical thinking could actually disqualify them from a job. Um, and as a result of that, they're not always open to, to what we might want to talk about. So yeah, there's all kinds of challenges. I, I definitely wouldn't minimize that. I'm reminded here of the recent book by Andrew Culp, the rather notorious uh, Dark Deleuze book. And in the book, uh, Andrew Culp basically says that uh, following the rather typical Dark Deleuzean logic is that it's almost impossible to imagine any alternative, any real alternative to a global capitalist worldview. And partially this is because capitalism and commodified consumer culture is able to channel our libidinal desires fantastically well. So for Culp in his book, uh, the only sort of way out of this is to find another sort of libidinality, one that gets excited about another thing than capitalism. And of course for Culp, this 
even more powerful excitement would come from the idea of destroying capitalism itself. So Kulp imagines this subversive subjectivity that always then needs to live a double life, one that on the surface looks like normal, but deeply underneath there's enjoyment in always plotting and planning and using the resources of systems uh, for change, for underhanded, for secretive change. Is there something like this also in your concept of the undercommons? Yes, there is something like that. Um, while we might not start from the same place as, as the Dark Deleuze argument, because one form of sustenance you get from the black radical tradition is you have a sense all along that actually there is something better, more enjoyable and deeper than, than the capitalist experience, even at its pinnacle. Uh, but where I think we, we do have some similarities is that we speak a lot about, well, as you know, early on, we spoke a lot about being within and against. But these days, we probably would speak more about complicity. And the reason for that is just because we've had the benefit of all these invitations where we get to talk with people in museums and art galleries and universities. And, and someone would say, you know, we like what you're, t you're talking about here. And in, in our own positions, we're trying to find ways to avoid being complicit. Um, and so gradually in conversation with everybody, we started to talk differently about complicity to say that what if we thought about complicity in a more of a double sense? Yes, of course, you are in the museum. The museum is funded by Shell. At the same time, what would it be like to act when you're in that museum with a kind of complicity that was not just the complicity with the institution, but complicity in the sense that we might use it to indicate that you have accomplices, to indicate that there is um, an unseen other with you, making it possible for you to do what you're doing or bringing up the possibility that you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. This notion, and sometimes we use the, I use the term in Italian, complicita, because in Italian it has even more the sense that when you're there, everybody somehow says, you're not here by yourself somehow. And we're not talking here about the older, uh, you know, kind of Trotsky's notion of uh, entryist and taking over the museum. We're talking about in infecting it, distorting it, uh, stealing from it, yes. Um, but stealing, again, is this, it's, it's about stealing back your time, which the museum is busy converting into labor time and into profit, etc. Uh, and that complicity is something to be cultivated, something that can grow inside the institution. And in that sense, yes, uh, one, one's showing different faces, one's showing different uh, looks, but this is a collective action. Uh, it can't be something that one negotiates individually. That's what we were trying to get away from, because initially what would happen is that someone who said they were complicit, worried about being complicit, would try to set out an individual strategy of how to say, well, I make my film over here and I don't let them take this film and then I do let them do this, etc. So you end up not only strategizing yourself even further into an individualizing um, uh, mentality, but you, you cut yourself off essentially from anything like a collective complicity at that point. That's where I, I, I can see some kind of resonance with what we're thinking. I guess the other thing, if I could just extend from that for a second, is, you know, for a long time, 
I, I think I was guilty of understanding the war on subsistence as something that was happening elsewhere, and especially with indigenous communities that were trying to set out their own path. But of course, the war on subsistence has been, is a war on everybody, and it's a war on people who teach too. And one of the things that I think is really important is how we get together to have enough subsistence to be able to refuse, to be able to say no. And that's not going to be the same subsistence as people who got a lot of land. It's going to have to look differently. We need to take back the means of social reproduction. Stefano, I hope I'm not boring you with with my stubborn effort to discover an analogy, but I guess that this is just my way to try to approach the concept of the undercommons uh, in its unconceptual nature. So what I'm reminded of here now is Zizek and how he analyzes Chaplin's uh, black and white silent movies. So basically Zizek says that Char- the character of Charlie Chaplin, uh, when he is revealed on, on, on the image, on the screen, uh, he represents a stain. So basically, uh, he upsets the standard, pristine, normalized, or sort of sanitized everyday life. And with his, you know, comedic stumblings and introduction of chaos, upsets the kind of reg- regular idea of society and the ways we live in there. So Chaplin is, in this sense, a sort of mistake that aesthetically brings on on chaos, uh, thus revealing a certain superficiality to the whole organization of life. So would this analogy work at all with the idea of undercommons, especially within the uh, context of organizational life? Yeah, absolutely. And, And again, I think because where something like the undercommons sort of shows up, it always shows up as something that appears to be to be wrong, something that appears to be unformed or underdeveloped or, you know, classically as something that needs fixing. And this is why Fred and I made this distinction in, in the other comments between planning, uh, fugitive planning, and policy. We use the word policy partly in its regular sense, but partly very specifically to talk about two phenomena. One was this idea that underlying policy is always this diagnosis that there's something wrong with those people over there. And therefore policy is is your prescription and intention to intervene. And the, the second reason that we wanted to use policy and maybe try to give it some new life as a word was because for a whole number of different reasons, Policy is also something that now has become democratized in the same way that Angela Metropolis might talk about the democratization of sovereignty. She doesn't mean it in a good way, and we don't mean it in a good way, where essentially everybody who regards himself or herself as sovereign, as fixed, as someone who was able to work on oneself until one became what one dreamed of being, that's the person now who thinks that he has the right to make policy and to make policy in regard to, you know, those that he sees as needing to be fixed, those 
who, you know, like Chaplin on the screen, show up and appear to be like a stain, a problem, a disruption of, of what was working well, right? And so that spreading of policy, and you can think of it in just the most obvious way if you're on social media, the number of people who get on social media and seem to have a whole set of policies that they're proposing for institutions or countries, which are completely absurd. No one's fucking paying any attention to them. But they, they develop this sort of sense that they're entitled to make policy because they've convinced themselves they're fixed. They have the right positions. They're right. They've done the right things to improve themselves. They've developed in the ways that they wanted to. And now it's time for them to turn their attention on those um, who need to be fixed. So, and of course, Chaplin always shows up as a figure who needs to get fixed. And, and so in that sense, far from being boring, this is exactly the kind of conversation that we love to have. Uh, Stefano, do you think that the undercommons reappears to us in, in new form during coronavirus? Uh, <laughs> well, at the risk of sound, sounding egotistical, it literally reappeared yesterday when I was watching the news because someone had it on a T-shirt at the protest um, in the U.S. What did the T-shirt say? Said the, it just said, uh, we are the undercommon. I'm a little uh, hesitant to offer too much on the relationship between the undercommons and the coronavirus I, I, because partly the undercommons as a whole was resistant to this idea that we should be immediately able to make the analysis and to produce the correct position around what's ever happening right now. And, and it's not an anti-intellectual uh, position that I'm trying to take or even a quietist one. It's, it's, it's that, you know, the best kind of thinking happens when, when we have time collectively to, to think things through. And, you know, one thing that's happening with the, the coronavirus and even more recently of course, what's on my mind as someone who was born in, in California is the, uh, you know, the protests going on across the United States and indeed some other parts of the world as well. I'm a little resistant to, to making too many connections up front, which is not to say that I don't want to talk about it. I, of course I do. Um, I just I, I feel like I want to talk about it without feeling like I need to give you some um, very smart analysis about what's going on. You know, I think that. That just inevitably is going to take time. Of course, one thing you could say about it is that I felt immediately the problem of so-called social distancing, which is a misnomer. I mean, capitalism is social distancing. But the physical distancing that uh, I've certainly been required to be in in the places I've been in the United States and Brazil in these last three months reminds one that study is... Uh, is an is an effective thing, as you were saying earlier, y'all. I think you know, study is a something that takes place, you know, in our bodies, and is also about not being too sovereign about the body. Uh, is about touch and feel as things that help to, and breath that help to um, undo our notions of the of the sovereign boundaries of our bodies. And so, study's harder, I think you know, under these conditions. And, and that may be one reason that I feel hesitant to, to, to be too smart about, you know, understanding what's going on right now with this thing. I'm thinking about it all the time and worried about it all the time, but I maybe not, uh, you know, I don't mind saying, I don't think I have anything particularly smart to say. 
I remember, Stefano, you making a, an analogy once that trying to organize a reading group in a university is probably as difficult as trying to organize a reading group on the factory floor of the power manufacturers, which I always thought was true. And a lot of these past few years, I've been thinking, if only I could just have a good stretch of time where I could stay at home and, and read and focus, how much more productive I'd be. And yet, now that I'm forced into that situation, I find, and I don't think that it's, I'm, I'm at all alone in finding this, that it's just very difficult to concentrate or build up any momentum behind study. And it occurs to me that actually the ebb and flow of being in a workplace and the different kind of rhythms of different tasks was actually part of how I'm able to study. Have you had any experiences like this? Or uh, like how, how am I to make sense of this paradox? You're actually reminded me of the kind of questions I was asking myself when I wrote State Work. And I was trying to understand why I liked going to work. And, you know, I sort of knew that it had to do with some sort of combination of, well, that's where capital socializes us, of course. So there, there was a social aspect to going to work. There was also the aspect of being confronted very directly with the contradictions of, of your work, etc. So I, I absolutely feel what you're saying, Alan, about um, the way in which this self-post, this imposed isolation is not... Um, what we wanted. And it's also, you know, on top of that, this has been a mass exercise in trying to, you know, not protect ourselves, but protect each other. But it's been directed entirely by the state and on the state's terms and on the terms of the experts who work with and for the state directly or indirectly. And so there's something that's been massively dissatisfying about the one recent time when we actually undertake this collective exercise of responsibility where, for instance, you wear a mask for somebody else, not for yourself. But I, I think more than anything else, what you're pointing to around, like, just having this time, etc., I think I always had this sense that in order to be alone, you had to be apart from people. But, of course, it turns out that that's because our, our togetherness was so full of the tensions and regulations and, and neuroses that the institution imposes on us. It, it led us to think, I just got to go close my office door and have a nap. But as it turns out, being alone doesn't require being apart. It doesn't re require actual physical isolation. Resting, recovering, what, what Valentina Desideri and I used to call I still call, I suppose, militant preservation, is not it's not really something to be undertaken individually. If we think about it for a minute, everybody would, I'm sure, agree that, you know, the, the whole notion that swept in recent years, um, the university and now has entered business in various ways, the whole notion of self-care is absurd. Nobody can take care of themselves. You can only take care of each other and be taken care of by each other. Um, so I think part of part of what we're feeling in this pandemic is all the artificialities of what it means to rest or have time, or these are all connected to the kind of duress we were under that had us thinking we wanted the opposite of it when really what we wanted was something different. Probably one of our tasks now 
is to elaborate what that difference is now that we see this wasn't what we wanted. You know, I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm, I got all the time in the world because I also don't have a job at the moment and I have a wonderful partner who's, you know, who's taking care of me essentially. My relationship with her is fantastic, but our relationship with, with the world is, is not good at all. We were so messed up by the institution that our re resistance and reaction was actually doing what Fred and I would call, it was actually creating the subject reaction, which is there are so many ways in which the, your institution um, that, or capital in general, the way that you're, you're hailed today actually pulls apart your prized notion of being sovereign or individual or unique because that's not actually how you're treated by anybody. You're constantly extorted to, to be like that, but day-to-day, -day, the way you're treated is exactly the opposite. As a result of that, because so many of us have been led into this belief in ourselves as individual subjects, we, we desperately try to pull ourselves back together. Self-care is one, one you know, iteration of that. You know, I'm going to put myself back together through self-care. And another, of course, is this this idea we have that, oh, if I just had some time to myself, I'd go away and read, right? And just perfectly understandable, just like self-care is at a level, at one level. But at another level, it's a subject reaction to something that, you know, was impossible in the first place, has now uh, shown, to some extent, shown its face more through this pandemic. And on a related note, uh, I suppose if we think of that as the micro question, then the macro one is the question of strategy. I seem to remember you, and I hope I'm remembering you right when I say that um, you said that one of the most comical things was university senior management having these away days to strategize for the university as though they have any real agency over what's happening in higher education rather than, than just kind of agents who are buffeted by ocean weather and trying to, to keep the, the ship afloat. Uh, am I right? You did say that, didn't you? Yeah, and one of the reasons that sounds right to me is that we all know how financialized most universities are, especially in the Anglo-American world. And as a result of that, senior university officials are very much like senior managers in, in most private firms. They've essentially been made redundant. They just, no one ever told them. Because essentially the markets are making the decisions. And so their rhetoric sounds hollow because it is hollow. It doesn't affect the fate of the organization. Um, they still have a certain capacity to fuck it up, but they certainly can't steer it in any direction. I remember sitting in Queen Mary when our new, whatever he was, came in, chancellor or whatever, and he said, uh, it's our ambition to move Queen Mary into the top 20 universities in the UK. And a kind of old-fashioned uh, historian who was a vice provost put his hand up and he asked the chancellor, he said, are you aware of any of the universities in the top 20 who are willing to step down? You know, and it was a kind of perfect moment of the silliness of this um, higher education leadership um, who are almost entirely at the mercy of these larger forces. And we're seeing that right now, of course, as the, in the UK, for instance, the, the question of all of the buildings built on the backs of the tuition of international students um, now threatens the, the system itself. Looking back at your uh, your various positions at universities, was there any moment when you found you were closest to 
a, a redeemable version of the university? Uh, for sure. I mean, there was a period when I was at Queen Mary in which um, we were able to work collectively. And this is the thing. This is especially true in American universities, um, especially the good American universities, where you'll hear people say, uh, well, nobody tells me what to teach, especially in the humanities. Nobody tells me what to teach. I can say whatever I want in the classroom. And that's true. But the thing is, you can only do that by yourself. You can't get together with a bunch of other professors and together do whatever you want. There's very strict rules about your academic freedom, and it is very individualized, entirely individualized. At Queen Mary, we got a chance for a brief period, probably three years is the extent of it, to actually do whatever we wanted together, collectively, as a large group of teachers, postgraduate students, and even in some instances, by the end, undergraduate students who wanted to be part of what we were trying to do. And, and we, we tried to rethink how we would study together in the university, how we would be in the business school, but at the same time, develop understandings of, of the world of business that um, actually had some content and actually had some possibility for transformation. And, um, and I wrote, actually, I've written about this. I wrote a whole chapter of it in this a new book that um, Cambridge just published. And um, I was at, as much as anything else, I was just trying to put down the record of all the things we did because it, it does remind me that there are, there are possibilities in any institution, in any university, but those possibilities are themselves fugitive. Sooner or later, they will catch up with you and they will stop what you're doing, um, which is what happened to us and what happened to me in particular. So I used to say to people as we hired them um, at Queen Mary, you know, we're going to do something interesting here, but keep your, your bags packed. Um, as it turned out, it was, it was me who had to keep my bags packed. But these things can occur for a period of time. And I, I would not want to be understood to discount them or think that there's no possibility there. I'd like to, to add to that that uh, I didn't work at Queen Mary, but I was living in London at the time and frequently visited the business school, and it just seemed to be such a beautiful moment. Um, so many wonderful seminars there, a very, very inspirational project. Yeah, we were lucky. It was a lucky, you know, it was a conjunctural uh, thing. It wasn't the time we started there that business school was not the focus of attention of Queen Mary, which was a, very much into its, its medicine and its sciences and only gradually coming to realize that the business school could be, you know, something that uh, they could use to, to fund programs, et cetera. They were, so we, we kind of got in under the radar and we got in with people who I'd, I'd say, Alan, a lot of them had one influence. A lot of them had was um, Italian autonomous Marxism. And that was largely thanks to Ariana Bove who joined us and who, had, had this independent website that, where we read a lot of that stuff translated into English. And that gave us this sense of creating an, an, an autonomous collective form of study inside the university. And then the other sort of influence there was post-colonial and black studies influences, which again had their own traditions of trying to uh, work in and against an institution. And that sort of culminated in these post-colonial capitalism conferences we would have every year. But you're right, it was also, it became a place where we had a chance to 
to welcome friends like you from other spaces too. So it was more than just us. It was whoever could come through and hang out and spend time. And as you'll remember, it was, um, you know, the, we also were trying to erase the line between the formal and the informal. So, you know, there, there were still lectures, but there was also all, all kinds of forms of hanging out. You know, there was an effort to live the, the collectivity uh, throughout our life. And there were certainly thoughts, though I think insufficient, about that relationship to what we were talking about earlier, to how one maintains um, some sort of form of independent base that allows one to refuse when things go bad. We weren't able to get there in that instance. I, I don't think of that as a failure, but I now think I, w- I want to think more seriously about that. Certain forms of organizing seem to be now a recurrent topic in this podcast. With the advent of the global pandemic, it would seem that increasingly various forms of societal rules and truisms are becoming more suspect, especially in the sense that they may have been deemed to be natural by various power hegemonies that rule our society. So in some contexts, leaders may have become more suspect, the police force equally so. Also, along these same lines, we have possibly become to really recognize better what are the real important tasks in the society surrounding us. It seems now fairly obvious that middle or even the top-level manager cannot really be seen as very essential as a role in this kind of real situation of distress and suffering. So is there anything with this growing suspicion that has arisen alongside the global situation that could be useful for the notion of the undercommons regarding institutions? Yeah, um, that's a nice question too. And in those, some of that has been on my mind. I, um, what I would say is that the, what's pressing most on my consciousness right now is the illegitimacy, which has always been there, but it's come to the fore of the police as an institution because of the movements and protests in the United States against anti-black police brutality. The thing that I want to say about that is that, you know, once again, like with, with Black Lives Matter and with Occupy, um, you'll, you'll hear people who say, well, there's a lot of people uh, protesting, but there doesn't seem to be a program. Of course, they have in mind that they would like to see people be demanding a platform and to have leaders who could step forward to do that, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, the undercommons is not written in that spirit. It's written in the spirit that these people don't need to be fixed, these protesters, that they know, they know what they want, they know what they're talking about. So I think that we have always this sort of uh, antagonism between critiquing these institutions, which clearly, once again, show themselves for what they are, in the case of policing in the United States is they basically need to be defunded because the the history of policing in the United States is so obviously one of uh, slave patrols, violence against uh, workers, etc. They are there to separate people from the wealth that they create. Nonetheless, we see that the police remain entirely obsessed with black people in the United States. And that leads one to have to say that although it is absolutely true that that the separation of people and wealth has been most abject in the black community, at the same time, the police keep coming back because somehow 
the black community, black people in general, remain the guardians of social wealth. They may not have access to it or only intermittent access, but black resistance, black social life is a, is a symptom that the separation of wealth has actually been unsuccessful. So you have what looks like a contradiction. You have black people totally separated from wealth in the United States. Average uh, black woman in the United States has $5 in savings. And yet on the other hand, the police are obsessed with trying to further separate black people both from wealth and from, from life itself. There's two things going on. There's, there are institutions being delegitimized, but there also is an opportunity, and this is where I do see connections with all the people who help us to, to think about the undercommons. There's also the chance to, to, to revalue things um, or to feel where value really lies, social value really lies. Stefano, on that note, one of the really radical, fascinating things about the other commons is how it links together the question of black study with the business school in, in a very fascinating way. Uh, but, but since that book came out, uh, you're, you're probably familiar with the book Manufacturing Difference by the historians Rodiger and Esch. Um, and, and in it, they, they make a claim which I really had not heard before, which is that the history of the business school in the United States of America is organically linked with the 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 uh, with race management, which itself dates back to uh, the plantations and, and slavery, which is a, a really interesting uh, thought. But the, the point that I'm making is that there's probably a lot more work to be done to think through the issue of black study and the business school and the uncomfortable entanglement uh, of political issues that arise there. But would you agree with that? I, I would. I first encountered it being addressed directly in the work of Bill Cook, whom you may know, who wrote quite a bit on the relationship between these sort of plantation uh, management manuals that were produced uh, and the invention of codification of management knowledge um, in the United States. There's so much to say about this, but I like the way that you sort of frame it as a collective project. I think when it comes both to slavery and colonialism, there's just an awful lot of work to do to position the business school today correctly. If I were going to just take one part of that, I'd say that um, it might be worth starting with really a kind of bold claim that the business of business is race. That, in fact, race has not been a convenient divider of workers alone or convenient uh, way to, to, to pay less or to pay little, uh, in fact, has been the, the purpose of business. And I think that's, a, you know, that's something that I'm working on right now with others um, to, try, to try to think about how you know, the production of, of labor as difference ultimately, you know, it, begins and, and ends in, in racialization. I'll just give you one, you know, kind of feel for that. I know it's a bold claim. You know, if you think about what one values most in business schools, it is precisely things like uh, productivity, uh, improvement, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And when we look at that at the level of labor, it's very easy to say that 
those who are, are, are labeled with low productivity essentially are also racialized. And I think that if we look hard enough in, in the basic precepts of improvement and development, et cetera, again and again, we get these distinctions made between those who are capable of development, those who are capable of improvement, and those who are not. And those categories appear in the business school to play out individually, but in society they play out collectively, and they are forms of racialization that are always at work. Um, and naturally, if you are resistant within that, then you're even more liable to be to be racialized in that way. So all of that occurs against the the long history that Cedric Robinson tells of the the institution of slavery in in Europe in the in the Middle Ages, its its um, conversion uh, in the Atlantic slave trade into this anti-black chattel slavery. Business arises in that atmosphere. I would make the bolder claim that the business business is race, but I'm at the beginning of doing that work with others. Thank you, Stefano. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Stefano. Wonderful. Well, thank you, guys. I've enjoyed talking with you, and um, hopefully we'll get to do it in person before too long. <laughs>